You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. We're sponsored once again this week by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Lincoln and the Fight for Peace by John Avlon, which is available now. At the end of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln refused to back down from his belief that there is more that unites us than divides us. But he also understood that peace needs to be waged with as much intensity as war. Lincoln and the Fight for Peace is available now wherever books are sold. Also available as a downloadable ebook and audiobook. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the 380th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Well, having just finished up the Battle of Gettysburg, with this episode we're going to fast forward on the podcast timeline from July of 1863 to November of that year. Way back when we first started the Gettysburg Battle and campaign story arc, We said that when we finished up with all of that, then we'd fast forward to the Gettysburg Address. So that's what we're doing. However, with the next episode, we'll go back to July 1863 and moving on from the Battle of Gettysburg, we'll pick back up with the regular podcast timeline. And first up will be the story of the 54th Massachusetts and the failed federal assault on Battery Wagner there outside Charleston, South Carolina which took place on July 18, 1863, and which, of course, was depicted in one of our favorite movies of all time, Glory. So that will be next time. But first, as promised, the Gettysburg Address. It was Thursday, November 19, 1863, and David Wills, the local lawyer who had planned the cemetery dedication, had lucked out as far as the weather. You see, Wills had originally wanted to hold the ceremony in October, but had agreed to move it back a month after the featured speaker, Edward Everett, had said he would need more time to prepare his speech. 
The 69-year-old Everett, a former politician, diplomat, and Harvard University professor, had established a reputation as the nation's foremost orator, and having him come to Gettysburg and give the keynote address at the cemetery dedication would be quite a coup. So to accommodate him, Wills had moved the ceremony to November. The weather on that day in south-central Pennsylvania, a little over four months after the battle, could just have easily been chilly and rainy and blustery, which would have put quite a damper on the proceedings. But Wills lucked out, and early morning clouds had disappeared. The temperatures the ceremony got started must have been nearing the day's high of 52 degrees, and a newspaper reporter noted that, quote, the sun never broke to life and warmth on a fair fall day than this. He declared it was, quote, one of the most beautiful Indian summer days ever enjoyed. A few minutes after 12 o'clock, the last notes of a funeral hymn played by a band died away, and Reverend Thomas Stockton, who was several times chaplain of the U.S. House of Representatives, stepped forward and gave the invocation, which culminated with the communal recitation of the Lord's Prayer. Stockton was recognized as one of the most outstanding preachers of that era, and several contemporary accounts of the ceremony at Gettysburg name his prayer as the single most emotionally powerful moment of the day. After Stockton sat down, the Marine Band played Old Hundredth, also known as the Doxology, and the familiar strains of that sacramental music would have further emphasized the solemn atmosphere of the ceremony. Then Ward Lehman, Abraham Lincoln's friend, bodyguard, and on this day, master of ceremonies at the cemetery dedication, introduced Edward Everett. Since that time, it has become almost obligatory to compare Everett's two-hour oration to Lincoln's two-minute address, always to Everett's detriment, as if his speech was a long-winded flop. But while we, as a modern audience, perhaps can't imagine sitting or standing through a two-hour speech, we badly misread the evidence if we think Everett failed to work his customary magic. Those in attendance, including Lincoln's private secretaries John Nicolay and John Hay, praised Everett at the time and ever after. In fact, since Everett's speech was the central event of the ceremony, those in attendance would have been disappointed and felt cheated if he hadn't given them such a grand oration. The speech's length, as Rich said, may seem daunting to us today, but according to the customs of that day and age, it was entirely expected by those in attendance. In fact, those attending the ceremony at Gettysburg almost certainly would have been shocked and surprised had Everett spoken for anything less than two hours. Everett gave a lengthy description of the fighting, day by day and blow by blow, gesturing in the direction of different spots on the battlefield as he talked about the flow of the action. His voice was sweet and expertly modulated, drawing in his audience. After his description of the battle, Everett filled the rest of the two hours with political and historical discourse, casting the Confederates as traitors who bore the sole guilt of bringing a dreadful civil war upon the nation, 
but looking ahead to the reunion of the two warring sections when peace would follow the current ongoing conflict. As Everett headed into the home stretch of his speech, he employed his considerable skills to touch one last time the hearts of his listeners and to call forth one final time the noble sentiments of love of the Union and commemoration of the dead. At one point he declared, quote, God bless the Union. It is dear to us for the blood of brave men which has been shed in its defense. Applause and congratulations greeted the conclusion of the grand oration. Everett would write in his diary, quote, After I had done, the president pressed my hand with great fervor and said, I am more than gratified. I am grateful to you. Now it was almost time for Lincoln to say his few words. But two hours, however moving and enjoyable, was a long time. And so, with the main event of the ceremony done, up next on the program was the performance by a choir of a hymn composed for the occasion by Benjamin French. The musical interlude would give people a chance to stretch their limbs and move about a bit and chat before the president rose to speak. Abraham Lincoln spent just 25 hours of his life in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, but during that span of time, he put the finishing touches on and delivered what many people, including your podcast hosts, considered to be the greatest speech ever written by an American president. But it's safe to say that few people, if anyone, would have predicted beforehand that Lincoln, during his quick visit to Gettysburg, would speak words that would be inscribed in stone and recited by generations. After all, David Will's invitation to Lincoln, only sent on November 2nd, a little over two weeks before the ceremony, simply asked if Lincoln would be willing to follow Everett's oration with, quote, a few appropriate remarks to, quote, formally set apart these grounds for the cemetery. The Soldier Cemetery, as it was first called, was an idea born of necessity. After the Battle of Gettysburg, when General Meade had set off in pursuit of the retreating Confederates, he had telegraphed Washington, saying, quote, I cannot delay to pick up the debris of the battlefield, end quote. That debris was mostly a matter of rotting horse flesh and man flesh, because when the armies moved on, they left behind thousands of bodies rapidly decaying in the July heat. For hygienic reasons, the hundreds upon hundreds of horses and mules had to be consumed by fire, filling the air with the smell of burning flesh. But as many as 8,000 human bodies were scattered over the battlefield, and those would have to be put under the ground as fast as possible. Teams of soldiers, Confederate prisoners, and local civilians, working in stifling heat and humidity, slid the bodies into hastily dug graves under a minimal covering of earth. They used rough boards and other handy pieces of wood to post the names of the Federal dead along with sketchy information about units, but they didn't take the time to accord even that crude formality to the burial of Confederate bodies since shoveling and retching 
It was a work to be done as quickly as possible while battling the clouds of flies that blanketed the corpses. Even after most of the dead were buried, the scene was revolting. A nurse shuddered at the all-too-visible, quote, rise and swell of human bodies, end quote, under the ground. Soon these uneasy graves were being rifled by relatives who had traveled to Gettysburg looking for the remains of their loved ones. As part of their quest, they would rebury other bodies they turned up, doing the job even more hastily and inadequately than the original burial crews. David Wills reported to Pennsylvania's governor, Andrew Curtin, quote, In many instances, arms and legs, and sometimes heads, protrude, and my attention has been directed to several places where the hogs were actually rooting out the bodies, end quote. Curtin realized that someone had to halt the unauthorized rummaging to identify the dead, had to deal with northern states who would be sending commissioners to identify their regiments fallen, and had to supervise the proper reburial of the bodies. Governor Curtin duly made the 32-year-old Wills his agent on the scene. Wills announced that bids would be taken for the contract to rebury the bodies. Out of 34 competitors, the high bid was $8 per corpse, while the winning bid was $1.59. The federal government was asked to ship in the thousands of caskets that would be needed, courtesy of the War Department. All other costs were handled by an interstate commission representing the 18 northern states whose soldiers had participated in the Battle of Gettysburg as part of the Army of the Potomac. Wills, in the name of Pennsylvania, took title to 17 acres of land for the new Soldiers' Cemetery, which would be located next to the town's graveyard, Evergreen Cemetery. The Soldiers' Cemetery, as designed by a Philadelphia landscape architect, would have the graves arranged in concentric semicircles radiating from a center point. Wills meant to formally dedicate the ground that would hold the soldiers' remains and wanted to have it done even before the corpses were moved. Edward Everett was Wills' inevitable choice for the ceremony. Everett had boosted the already considerable fame of the Revolutionary War battlefields at Lexington and Concord and also Bunker Hill with soaring orations at those sites and Wills knew that to simply have him speak at the cemetery dedication would elevate Gettysburg to the first rank of America's great battles. And so Everett was invited in September for a planned October ceremony. But Everett replied that a month wasn't sufficient time for him to spend on his customary preparation for a major speech, and said he couldn't possibly be ready before November 19th. Wills seized on that first possible date, though it upset the reburial schedule he'd originally planned for an October ceremony. In the end, he decided to move up the reburials, beginning the work in October, and hoping to be finished before the November dedication. The careful negotiations with Everett formed a contrast with the casual invitation extended to President Lincoln two months later, But while surprising to us today, Lincoln actually took no offense, since in those days, federal responsibility or participation was not a given in state activities, such as the dedication of the Soldiers' Cemetery. 
The president certainly knew that Everett was to be the main speaker, and though he himself was specifically invited to deliver only, quote-unquote, a few appropriate remarks to dedicate the Soldiers' Cemetery, Lincoln nevertheless clearly intended to make the most of the opportunity, and he would use those few appropriate remarks to not merely pay tribute to the fallen, but to honor their sacrifice by defining the meaning of the war and its historic consequences. At Gettysburg, Abraham Lincoln would eloquently and succinctly share his remarkable vision for a future in which the United States emerged from the crucible of civil war as one nation, indivisible, with liberty for all. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Abraham Lincoln's acceptance of David Will's invitation to give a few appropriate remarks at the cemetery dedication was an unprecedented decision on the president's part. Since taking office, he had never before left Washington with the express purpose of participating in a public event or giving a speech. Another clue to the importance Lincoln attached to the opportunity to speak at Gettysburg was that he continued with his plans to make the trip even though his son, Tad, was quite ill. You see, since the death of their son Willie a year and a half before, the Lincolns, and Mary in particular, had been deeply worried any time Tad had taken sick. That Abraham would leave Mary at such a time, when Tad was ill, shows that he considered the dedication ceremony to be an important event. Perhaps nothing better demonstrates the importance Lincoln attached to the Gettysburg ceremony than his attempt to bring his entire cabinet with him. For example, Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells wrote in his diary, quote, I was invited and strongly urged by the president to attend the ceremonials at Gettysburg. But Wells begged off, saying he couldn't spare the time to make the trip. 
Attorney General Edward Bates, and Treasury Secretary Salmon Chase also didn't accompany Lincoln to Gettysburg, frustrating the president's strong desire to have his administration, in the form of the entire cabinet, show a united front by going to Gettysburg and associating itself with the ideals and sacrifices that the battle, the cemetery, and the ceremony represented. Although the legend of the Gettysburg Address would have us believe that Abraham Lincoln went to the dedication of the Soldier's Cemetery to change the world with his words, that is perhaps a bit of a stretch, even for us. But still, we wanted to point out that there's considerable evidence that Lincoln clearly attached significant importance to the opportunity to say a few appropriate remarks. Definitely, the evidence suggests that Lincoln viewed his Gettysburg remarks as an important opportunity to share his evolving vision for the new birth of freedom that he expected, anticipated, hoped would shape America's post-Civil War identity. And he knew that vision needed expression, because communicating that vision was vitally important if the people of the Union were to carry through to completion the unfinished work still before them. Lincoln would have certainly been familiar with the Old Testament scripture, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18, which says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. It's important to keep in mind that the president's annual message to Congress, which was the 19th century equivalent of the modern State of the Union address, was coming up on December 8, 1863, less than three weeks after Lincoln's visit to Gettysburg. And by all indications, he viewed this annual message as a pivot point in the war. Abraham Lincoln, looking ahead to America's future beyond the war, planned for this annual message in December 1863 to be a crucial milestone in the formulation of a coherent reconstruction policy and its presentation to Congress and the nation. Significantly, Lincoln was working on his annual message at the same time in November that he was working on the remarks he would be giving at Gettysburg. In his book, Writing the Gettysburg Address, Martin Johnson points out, quote, Thus it happened that the Gettysburg Address, which became Lincoln's most admired and profound statement of national identity, was written at precisely the same moment that he formulated his most far-reaching and important statement of Reconstruction policy, outlining the future of the Union. This timing was not a coincidence, the two statements sprang from Lincoln's deliberations about the same problems. What were those problems? Well, written during the two weeks surrounding his journey to Gettysburg, Lincoln's annual message to Congress clearly stated that the moment had come for a more comprehensive and long-range plan for Reconstruction, a plan ultimately for what the reunited nation would look like after the war was over. And what had brought the nation to this pivot point, this point in time when it was necessary to look ahead to the future of the Union? Well, in his annual message, Lincoln said it was the fact that it was this past year, 1863, when, quote, 
the policy of emancipation and of employing black soldiers gave to the future a new aspect about which hope and fear and doubt contended in uncertain conflict. End quote. We believe it was with his remarks at Gettysburg that Abraham Lincoln intended to cut through that uncertain conflict, cut through the fear and the doubt, and focus on hope by communicating his vision that the war would result in a new birth of freedom for America, one nation, indivisible, with liberty for all, white and black. Abraham Lincoln communicated that vision on that long-ago day in November 1863, standing on that platform at Gettysburg. But still, today, when we hear the address, those words resonate with us because there's something deep inside of us that knows that it's with these words that Americans still say, this, this is who we are. After the choir from Baltimore finished with Benjamin French's hymn, it was Lincoln's turn to speak. A reporter from Cincinnati wrote that a quote-unquote rustle of expectation ran through the crowd as Ward Lehman stood and called out the President of the United States. Lincoln stepped forward. A reporter from Harrisburg, Joseph Gilbert, hired by the Associated Press to cover the Gettysburg event, later recalled, he stood for a moment with hands clasped and head bowed in an attitude of mourning, a personification of the sorrow and sympathy of the nation. Adjusting his old-fashioned spectacles, he produced from a pocket of his coat several sheets of paper from which he read slowly and feelingly. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We are met to dedicate a portion of it as the final resting place of those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here, have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or to detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work that they have thus far so nobly carried on, it is rather for us here to be dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion 
to that cause for which they here gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that the nation shall, under God, have a new birth of freedom, and that the government of the people, by the people, and for the people, shall not perish from the earth. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Writing the Gettysburg Address by Martin P. Johnson. We enjoyed Johnson's book immensely and highly recommend it. The version of the Gettysburg Address that I read a moment ago was taken from his book and seems to be, as best as can be determined, the words that were actually heard by those in attendance at the cemetery dedication on that day in November 1863. There are a couple of other books on the Gettysburg Address that we'll also recommend. First, there's Lincoln at Gettysburg, The Words That Remade America by Gary Wills. Then, The Gettysburg Gospel, The Lincoln Speech That Nobody Knows by Gabor Borat. And finally, Long Remembered, Lincoln and His Five Versions of the Gettysburg Address, published by the Library of Congress with commentary by Douglas L. Wilson. Don't forget that you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we wrap up this episode, we want to say thank you to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade for their support of the podcast. So, thank you to Quarters, Matt J., Dan, and Todd C. And also thank you to Bob C. and Daniel M. for their recent donations. And thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hey y'all, just a reminder that we're sponsored once again this week by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Lincoln and the Fight for Peace by John Avlon, which is available now. At the end of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln refused to back down from his belief that there is more that unites us than divides us. But he also understood that peace needs to be waged with as much intensity as war. Lincoln and the Fight for Peace is available now wherever books are sold. Also available as a downloadable ebook and audiobook.